Please remain standing and take out your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for drawing us together as your people. We thank you for the privilege that we may come together in your name. We thank you for the gift of your holy word. Lord, as we explore this topic from your word, we pray that you would grant us insight and understanding by your spirit. We pray that it would impact us and shape and mold us uh, into who you desire us to be. Lord, we pray that all of your people would grow to have peace in their hearts, knowing that we have been justified firstly by faith through Christ, and that we have peace with you. And Lord, may that also grant us peace in the world. Lord, I pray that for those who have troubled hearts, I pray that you would still them. I pray that you would help us to grow to see how we may fight this sin. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through all that is done and said this morning. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing in John's Gospel, uh, but we are pausing this morning on verse 1 of chapter 14. Jesus here is seeking to comfort his disciples. He has told them that he will be leaving them shortly, and that where he is going, they cannot come. As we know, Jesus has been speaking in this of his own death and departure. He had then turned to address Peter, and declared to him that despite all of his bluster, right, where Peter said, I would die for you, despite his bluster and boasting, he would deny Christ three times before this night was through. And so given this turmoil, it is understandable that Jesus would then seek to give some comfort to his disciples. To them, it must look like everything is collapsing and all will be lost. And so Jesus provides some comfort, some encouragement. And in order to do that, he is going to prescribe a remedy to their problem. And this makes John 14 an immensely practical section. Because Jesus' disciples are not the only ones who face this particular problem. I would venture to guess that this is a very, very common problem. Likely one that you have all faced at some point within the last week, and many of you perhaps even this morning. The problem is that of a sinfully troubled heart. Or as John Piper puts it, to feel an unholy turmoil about a problem that you are facing. This is the problem of sinful fear, a worry or anxiety which is rooted finally in a lack of faith. John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Now this word troubled means to stir up, uh, to be agitated or shaken. Uh, it was the same word used uh, to describe the water in the pool of Siloam. If you remember, there was the uh, paralyzed man, and there's that uh, story of the angel who would come and stir up the water, and then whoever would go into it first 
would allegedly be healed. Uh, that, that word for, for stirring up, agitated, to be shaken. Uh, in this context, Jesus says, let not your hearts be that. Let not them be troubled. So in this context, Jesus is speaking of an unholy agitation of heart. It is a sinful fear, as Jesus commands them, not to be shaken in this way, not to be agitated in heart in this way. And this may come as a surprise to some, as this is not the way that our culture views it. We see from this text and from others that God considers anxiety to be a sin. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So you see, again and again, Jesus commands, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Similarly, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So while not all troubling of the heart is sinful, I believe that the vast majority of what we would call anxiety today would fall under this category of sinful fear, sinful worry. Sinful anxiety, an unholy turmoil about a particular situation or problem that we are facing. Anxiety, worry about tomorrow, about food, clothing, finances, relationships, whatever it may be. We are commanded again and again not to be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything. We see, therefore, anxiety is not what God desires for his children. To continue to live constantly in anxiety would be to disobey this command. To disobey a command of scripture is to disobey God. And to disobey God is sin. Now I do want to 
tread cautiously here. For the person who is struggling with anxiety, this might feel like we're just piling on now. Right? They would say, as if my daily anxieties aren't bad enough, now you're going to add a big heaping pile of guilt on top of it that I would feel guilty on top of being anxious, right? as if I didn't have enough to worry about. But this is absolutely worth saying. Firstly, simply because it's true. Right? If you would say that a preacher shouldn't make a point like this, I would ask you, well, does God not command us not to be anxious? Right? John 14 verse 1 right here is dealing with unholy turmoil in response to a problem. Jesus commands them, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus says that many times, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. Uh, the inspired apostle says not to be anxious about anything. So frankly, if you don't think a preacher should make this point, I would say, respectfully, you can take that up with God. Right? For he has said it in his word. He's the one who commands us not to be anxious. Uh, our duty as preachers is to simply proclaim the whole counsel of God. And secondly, and where I hope this is really going to be really encouraging for you this morning, we'll see that this is worth making this point because as is true with all of God's commands, this is for our good. Part of why is that viewing anxiety as a sin places it in the category of things which must be fought against. And I would submit to you, this can completely transform how you approach and think about anxiety. And it will transform it for the better. What is the attitude of the Christian to be toward any and all sin in their life? Nothing short of militant. We are commanded to exert holy violence against all of the sin in our lives. Colossians 3.5 Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So we see anything earthly in us, anything that arises from our sinful nature, we are commanded, put it to death. Kill it. Make it dead. Mortify. We are at war with sin. And so coming to see anxiety as one of these sins, therefore makes anxiety something that must be warred against as all sin which arises from our sinful nature. And this will completely change how you approach it. Now, one of the major problems in our day, uh, particularly with modern psychology, is the tendency to develop in people a victim mentality. Modern psychology will give special names to our propensities for sin. And now we are functionally victims of a disorder rather than perpetrators. And so we need pity, not rebuke. We need counseling, affirming counseling and medication, not repentance. We are the victims here. 
And of course, we will grant that some people really do have it harder than others. I do not doubt that some people are predisposed towards certain behaviors. We'll not deny at all that experiences, trauma, and the different ways that others sin against us can all have serious effects on us, making particular battles harder for us than for the next person. So if this is you, we'll, we'll grant it. We'll say, sure, you have a harder time with this issue than the next person. Granted. But that's not the question. The question is, what does God say about this thing? Do you see this issue the way that God sees it? If God has defined something as sin, if he has commanded us not to do something, not to feel something, then we are never permitted to simply throw up our hands and declare ourselves to be the victims of this thing. It may very well be harder for you than for the next person. So the real question is, what are you going to do about it? The fact that we have a particularly difficult challenge with something, with some type of sin, does not in any way remove our culpability before God. It does not let us off the hook from obeying God. If we stand before God on Judgment Day and we are called to account, we will not get to say, this was harder for me, therefore it was okay. Right, that will not fly. Now, to anticipate another objection, someone might say, but this question of anxiety, right, we're, we're talking about an emotion here. I've always believed that sins are only actions. Right? God can't command anything about emotions because emotions are outside of our control, right? Well, the answer to this, if you know your Bibles, is that God frequently commands the emotions. He frequently commands the thoughts, the affections, Consider, we are commanded to be joyful always. We are commanded to be grateful, to be loving, to be generous and compassionate. We are forbidden from certain negative feelings, emotions. We are forbidden from being hateful, from being covetous, and yes, from being anxious. Sinful, sinfully worried, sinfully afraid, unholy turmoil. We see it is not only actions that God commands us to put to death. Even in that text from Colossians, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Right? Sinful passions, evil desires, covetousness, those are not merely actions. Yet we are commanded to put them to death. Right, whatever comes from your sinful nature. So this raises the question, how do you battle against sinful feelings, sinful emotions, sinful desires? It feels so different than battling against other sins. Right? When you have the temptation to do some kind of sin, 
right, some kind of sinful action, there is usually a period of temptation wherein you then have the decision to make, will I act on this temptation? Will I do this thing? Will I give in to the temptation? But with something like anxiety, with sinful feelings and emotions, it seems so different, doesn't it? Right? The will does not seem to be involved in the same way. Right? It doesn't seem like you have that period of temptation where you then have the choice to make, will I be anxious or will I not? It seems much more like you just are. Right? It's like it skips that temptation stage altogether and just lands you smack in the middle of it. Sometimes even first thing in the morning as your head pops off the pillow and it floods in, you're just hit with it. So it seems like a very different battle. And so the question is, how do you fight something like this? Right? How do you battle something like this? Well, I think firstly, number one, you must work to see it how God sees it. This begins with confession. In confessing our sins to God, a big part of what confession is, is agreeing with God about the sinfulness, about our own sinfulness. We are agreeing with God about the sinfulness of our thought, word, or action. Confession is the acknowledgement, yes, God, this is sin. Yes, I am in sin. I am culpable. I am a perpetrator. What this means is that you must completely let go of the idea that you are a victim of it. For as long as you view yourself primarily as a victim, you are still hanging on to the belief that you need pity and not repentance. You are holding on to the idea that it's not really my fault. And so, with anything that God defines as sin, anything God commands us not to do, not to be, not to feel, you must put the victim mentality to death. For it will simply paralyze you, preventing action and preventing full repentance. So that's number one. Strive to see it as God sees it. Begin with prayer. Confess this sin to God as sin. Plead his forgiveness and ask for the grace needed to fight this sin. Number two, engage your will to fight this sin. So after you've prayed, confessed, and asked God for grace, obey God and seek with everything in you to put this sin to death. In the battle against sinful emotions, there is far more that you can do than you may realize, especially if you've become accustomed to being blown about by these things for a long time. You, you may not realize how much you can actually do with your will. So engage your will. Strive to control your thoughts. This is part of the fruit of the Spirit called self-control in gratia. It means self-mastery, self-control, dominion within. Seek to discipline your mind. 
while it may not feel like you are choosing to feel a certain way, the choice that you have when you realize you are is whether or not you will assent to those feelings. Right? A, a feeling washes over you, a, a wave of anxiety or temptation of some kind. This washes over you. Now you have a choice. Will you assent to it? Will you agree with it? Will you let it simply wash over you and stay there in your mind? If it's a sinful thought or sinful feeling, then you must not let it have free reign. Chase it out. Answer it with the truth. You know, far too often we struggle in this way because we've gotten into the habit of listening to ourselves rather than preaching to ourselves. Right? The thought enters our minds or, or the feeling enters our hearts and we don't evaluate it. We don't answer it. We don't chase it away. We just let it be. Uh, in part, this is, we've been catechized by Disney, listen to your heart. <laughs> Uh, and so we just listen to whatever comes into our minds. But if we remember, as Scripture says, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9. If we remember that our own sinful nature is at war with the things of God, if we remember that the world and the devil are battling against us, we will then evaluate our thoughts, evaluate our feelings. Ask, where did that come from? Is that a godly Thought. Does God agree with that thought? Try to identify the specific claims that your feelings are making. Right? If you have a feeling, what is it saying? Or you feel a certain way, what's the message? If it's a sinful thought, a sinful feeling, then you must know that it is preaching lies. What are those lies? And so rather than simply listening to ourselves, being swept along by these sinful emotions, we must preach to ourselves. Answer the lies with the truth. This is how you counter the lies of Satan and the lies of indwelling sin. You answer them with the truth. If you remember the passage in Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare and the armor of God, we are said to have only one offensive weapon. What is it? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word is our weapon. The Word is our sword. And this is part of how you wield it. Use Scripture to slay the lies of the enemy. Right? Like a priest, like Samuel, hack it to pieces. <laughs> like Phineas, impale it. Answer those lies with the truth. Preach those truths to yourself. Herald them to your heart and your mind. Declare to yourself that you do not believe those lies, whatever they are. That you are not going to simply assent to those feelings and believe what they are telling you. But you are answering them with truth from the word. And here is one of the many reasons why it is so vital that Christians be in the word. For you will not be able to wield it well if you do not know it. You will be left unequipped for the battle if you have not learned enough of the word in order to wield it when the struggle comes. 
is one of the many reasons why we must be in the Word regularly. This is an excellent reason to sign up for the Bible reading challenge. Join Ephraim's group chat for accountability. Uh, Find a a reading plan. Uh, We must be in the Word regularly. We must be pondering the Word, meditating on it, driving it down into our hearts, and memorizing it. For if we do not know it, we cannot wield it. Slay lies with the truth. Wield the sword. Take specific promises, specific doctrines, and specific commands, and use them in fighting specific battles. All right, so that's the general approach to how do you fight against sinful emotions and thoughts. Now let's get specific. In the case here of our text in John, the specific battle is a sinfully troubled heart. Right, this unholy turmoil over the problem at hand. So how do we specifically battle the sin of anxiety, this, this sinfully troubled heart? <clears throat> Jesus gives the solution. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. So there's the problem. Now what's the solution? Believe in God. Believe also in me. The hearts of the disciples were troubled. And let's be honest, from a human perspective, they really did have good reason to be. Remember, the disciples have known for a good while now that there was danger lurking. It was not that long ago that the Jews had picked up stones to stone Jesus. Jesus had hidden himself from them, even leaving Judea for a time. If you remember, it was... The situation with Lazarus that had been the reason that they returned to Judea. And even then, the disciples were already dreading what might happen if they would return there. After Jesus raised Lazarus, the arrest warrant went out for him. And yet Jesus, nevertheless, very deliberately entered into Jerusalem. Right right into the lion's den, so to speak. And he did so publicly in the triumphal entry, being hailed as Messiah. Now, Jesus has been speaking of his own death and departure. One of the twelve, one of the trusted twelve, has been outed as a traitor and has gone off into the night. And then Jesus turns to Peter and said that he too would deny him. These are troublesome times. And yet in the midst of all of this, Jesus tells his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Notice that is not a denial of the trouble, but rather it is faith in something greater. Reminded here of the story of Jesus calming the storm. If you remember, Jesus was sleeping on the boat as a storm kicks up begins flooding the boat. The waves are breaking over. The disciples are afraid and they come and wake Jesus and say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Mark 4, 39, Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You see that faith is the answer to fear. Faith in God, faith 
in Christ. For the disciples on that boat, it was not that Jesus expected them to have faith in their experience as sailors, not faith in the fishermen, the skill of the fishermen among them. It was not that they had to try to deny the real danger they were in. It was not about optimism, putting on a brave face, pretending that things are better than they are. But rather it was faith in Jesus. Faith that there is someone who is with them, who is stronger than the wind, stronger than the waves, sovereign over the storm. Why does Jesus tell his followers that they need not be anxious about food and clothing? His answer is God's meticulous providence, right? God's absolute and utter sovereignty. For if he even cares for the grass and the birds, clothing and feeding them, then how much more can we be confident that he will take care of us? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. The God who calls us to have faith in him is not a well-meaning but impotent grandfather in the sky. Nor is he uninvolved. He is not the divine watchmaker who simply wound up this world and now steps back and lets it spin on its own. He is a God who is sovereign over the life and the death of every little sparrow. He is a God who clothes the flowers of the field with greater splendor than Solomon had in all of his glory. He is a God who is infinite in power. Christ, the eternal word, through whom and for whom all things were made, continues to uphold them all by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 He keeps a running tally on the hairs of your head. He has not forgotten you. He is not too busy running the rest of the cosmos to remember you. For again, if not even a sparrow falls apart from him, apart from his will, then how much more can we be confident that he watches over those who bear his image? Faith in our sovereign God casts out fear. The disciples are about to face one of the most difficult weekends of their lives. The shepherd will be struck. The sheep will be scattered. Most of them will either watch for a di from a distance or cower in fear and shame as the one whom they have come to love and confess as Lord and Messiah is given a mock trial, stripped, beaten, flogged, and then crucified. And Jesus tells them right before all of this happens, have faith, believe in God, believe in me. To believe in Jesus, to have this kind of trust and confidence in Jesus would not have been the easiest thing while he was being crucified. To have faith in Jesus 
would not have been the easiest thing while he was dead and laid in a tomb. Yet this is what Christ called them to. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And here we see the wisdom of God. For in his sovereign purposes, what looked to be the greatest failure, the greatest defeat, what was truly the greatest evil that had ever been committed, was in fact the very thing that God had planned to bring salvation. Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we see at the cross or better, at the empty tomb, God has proven beyond all shadow of any doubt his own ability to use evil for good. Christ called for his disciples to believe, to trust, to have faith. Even in this most difficult of weekends, God knew what he was doing. Christ knew what he was doing. This was true for the disciples as they faced the arrest and crucifixion of their master. And this is equally true for you as you face whatever it is that has your heart troubled. God is sovereign. God is good. If you are in Christ then you have this assurance that God is working all things together for his glory and for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Christ. The answer to sinful fear is faith. To believe God, to trust God. The greater your faith in God, the smaller your fear will be, for you trust him. The disciples on the boat were rebuked for their lack of faith, for their unbelief. Jesus said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, I remember as a child driving through snowstorms in the back seat, and you know, it could get a little bit frightening to look out and not be able to see the road in front of the, front of the van or the truck. But I never really struggled much with fear. Why? My dad was driving. My dad was driving and I trusted him. I had faith that if he was behind the wheel, we would make it home. And we always did. And so you see, there's an inverse correlation between faith and fear. The two are mutually exclusive. Where faith claims territory, fear is driven out. The greater your faith, the smaller your fear. The Puritan John Flavel writes this, If people were to dig to the root of their fears, they would find unbelief. The weaker the faith, the greater the fear. Unbelief generates fear and fear strengthens unbelief. So to apply this practically, 
preach to yourself the sovereignty of God when you are facing sinful fear. Answer those lies that your fear is preaching to you. Wield the sword of the Spirit against them. Use the truth of God's word. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from my Father. And if he looks after even the birds, he will look after his beloved children. Trust in God. Trust in Christ. Trust that God is sovereign. Trust that his purposes are good toward his children. And finally, trust that his grace never ends. John Piper calls this faith in future grace. Now, if you will drill down into it, one of the common lies that anxiety is preaching to you is that there will not be enough grace for you if a certain fear of yours were to come to pass. You have this sense of dread or foreboding, and if you could put it into words, what it's communicating is that if this thing happens, right, this worst-case scenario that I'm worried about, that I'm dreading, I'm fearing, if that happens, this, that will be it. Right? Game over. Nothing but despair, nothing but hopelessness. And so anxiety then, acting like a false prophet, pulls that negative emotion from that hypothetical hopeless future into your present and tries to make you live in it now, in the despair of something that hasn't happened. Now the counter to this is hope. The counter to this is faith in future grace. The recognition and confident assurance that God will be with you even there. Even if that thing happens, that worst case scenario, God's grace will be with you there. You know, we do sometimes come to a place where we feel overwhelmed. Something has happened or we fear something may happen. And we look at the strength that we have right now in this moment and we rightly conclude that our own strength, right, the current amount of grace we have from God is not going to be enough to get us through the next six months or the next week or the next day. But here's the thing. The strength that you have today, the grace that God has given you for this moment, wasn't meant to be enough for the next six months. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The grace you have today is enough for today. Jesus said that sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think this verse would be the corollary of that. Sufficient also for the day is the grace that God grants to you. What you have now isn't enough for tomorrow. It isn't meant to be. But the promise is this. His mercies are new every morning. Like the manna in the wilderness, God provided more every morning. He met the needs of his people. 
Remember that aside from the Sabbath day, if the people tried to store up some of the manna from the day before to collect it and keep it for the next week, it would go bad. But God was faithful and continued to provide. His provision for them was new every morning. So too with his grace, he provides what we need when we need it. The grace that you have now, the strength you currently have in this moment, doesn't need to last till tomorrow because tomorrow there will be a fresh store of grace. So too the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. God's grace is an ever-arriving river drawn from a bottomless spring. That spring will never dry up. And so whatever you're facing, whatever happens, if your worst fears were to come to pass, know this, God will be there. His grace will be there. Fresh stores of mercy, fresh help, fresh strength. And so do not let your anxieties lie to you about God's grace. Do not let them convince you that God's grace will dry up, that it will not be enough. But answer it with the truth. His mercies are new every morning. His grace never comes to an end. Now in my own life, this was extremely beneficial in overcoming one of my fears. <laughs> when I was in my mid-twenties, I had the fear that I might be single when I was 30. Now, for some reason, I, I had a, a sense of foreboding, uh, that this feeling that is, if I reached that birthday without being married, that it would be really bad, right? Now, it was this concept of faith and future grace that really helped me. Was I afraid that God's grace would run dry? That if I reached that age unmarried, that life was suddenly going to be unbearable? What was I basing that on? God had been very good to me. He had continually supplied my needs. His grace had been there for me, ever arriving, never ceasing. And so this brought me more contentment than anything else. The simple assurance that though I turned 30 or 40 or 50 and were still single, God's grace will never run dry. He will provide the grace that I need to honor him in any and every circumstance. His mercies are new every morning and every year. Do not let your fears preach to you a future where God's grace has run dry. God does not intend for his children to live with sinful fear unholy troubling of spirit. Even as the disciples faced the death of their master. And we see that in the wisdom of God, what caused their trouble would actually prove to be the ultimate reason why they would not need to let their hearts be troubled. In chapter 31, or pardon me, 13, verse 21, Jesus actually uses the same word uh, here for troubled to describe his own spirit. 
Now, whatever type of troubled Jesus meant of himself, it was, of course, not a sinful fear that Christ was feeling. Our Lord was sinless. Uh, So this troubling of his spirit was not due to a lack of faith or a forgetfulness of God's presence or power, as ours most often is. Rather, the very thing that was causing Christ's spirit to be troubled is the ultimate reason why we need not let our hearts be troubled. Now, firstly, the fact that Christ's spirit was troubled points again to his humanity. Christ knows what it is to suffer, and he is therefore a merciful and compassionate high priest. He is kind and gentle with us. A bruised reed he will not break, and a gently burning wick he will not snuff out. And so to those who are truly burdened by anxiety, he does call out, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. While there is rebuke for the sinfully self-pitying, there is also comfort, rest, and welcome for the suffering and the weary. Now Christ's spirit was troubled as he considered his impending betrayal at the hands of Judas, his trial, the torture he would undergo, and ultimately the wrath of God that he would bear on the cross. This is what was troubling his spirit. And it is because he endured this trouble that we need not have our hearts be troubled. For Christ was going to undergo the wrath of God so that his people might not. He died in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might have peace with God. John Flavel writes that another cause of sinful fear is guilt. He says, a servant of sin is necessarily a slave of fear. Those who commit evil must expect evil. Fear and trembling arise out of guilt as naturally as sparks fly out of a furnace. Christ died to remove our guilt. He took our greatest cause for fear, the pending wrath of God against us for our sin. He bore that in himself. And so now those who are justified by faith in him have peace with God. Brothers and sisters, if you have peace with God, you have no ultimate reasons for fear. As we'll unpack through the rest of this chapter in the weeks to come, your eternal destination is secure. God himself goes with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Christ is mediating at the right hand of the Father, pleading your acceptance before him. If you are in Christ, then the one who made you has also redeemed you. He has promised to give you grace in every circumstance, to provide you with what you need to honor him when you need it. So brothers and sisters, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Christ. Amen.